interest in the following audio recording produced by Chesterton House, a center for Christian studies at Cornell University. Support for Chesterton House comes entirely from listeners like you, and we invite you to help us continue making the recordings of past lectures available at no cost through a donation to the ministry. You can find additional resources and make a donation at www.chestertonhouse.org. This audio recording is copyrighted and unauthorized duplication is prohibited. Rather than tackle another whole subject, I thought I'd just stay on the same theme, only sort of widen the kind of perspective a little bit and deal with sort of it's what, I, what I would call living in the shadow of the fall, living in the, in the shadow of the, the brokenness. There's two major sort of primal events in the Christian story. One is creation, and then there's the fall, and that affects everything. And then the story goes on from that. But whenever we uh, think of ourselves, see another person, we're talking to a person who is created by God but fallen. Uh, and, and that's just the way things are, which makes actually the human sciences, a Christian perspective on the human sciences, very, very unique because we see people not just as... as uh, as the products of, of evolutionary process, but there's, some, there's a createdness and there's a fallenness. So there's the way it ought to be, and, though, and then the way it's been skewed and bent. And, and uh, that, that adds a, a different whole uh, spin, I think, to how we see ourselves. Um, I guess it's one of, our, one of our hobby horses in Labrie because we feel that a lot of Christians within their own faith don't sort of reckon on the fallenness of the world, because the world we're living in doesn't believe in the fall, sees everything as normal and fine, and there's nothing that limits us from limitless progress or limitless uh, gain or growth in whatever area we're talking about. And uh, we, uh, as Christians, want to say, to to introduce some some doubts here to this great uh, optimism uh, progression. And uh, I think it's important that we know sort of where and why and how that works out. Uh, <clears throat> I thought I'd read another, a, a quick piece from one of my favorite authors. Uh, he just died a couple of years ago, but he's a social historian called Daniel Borstin, where he does it's just a really interesting take on American attitudes, American uh, sense of entitlement. Uh, this is from a book he wrote called The Image, which was it's amazing because he wrote it so long ago. It's almost 50. 50 years ago uh, that he wrote it and it's so much more true now than it was then in media theory not many people have added to what he's done They've just, they just cite him, quote him and go on uh, it's a fascinating book um, he was the librarian of congress also for some years but uh, he's talking about extravagant expectations I'll quote him at some length here When we pick up a newspaper at breakfast we expect, we even demand that it brings us momentous events since the night before We turn on the car radio as we drive to work and expect news to have occurred since the morning newspaper went to press. Returning in the evening, we expect our house to be to not only shelter us, to keep us warm in winter and cool in summer, but to relax us, to dignify us, to to encompass us with soft music and interesting hobbies, to be a playground, a theater, and a bar. We expect our two-week vacation to be romantic, Exotic, cheap, and effortless. We expect a faraway atmosphere if we go to a nearby place. And we expect everything to be relaxing, sanitary, and Americanized if we go to a faraway place. We expect anything and everything. We expect the contradictory and the impossible. We expect compact cars which are spacious. Luxurious cars which are economical. We expect to be rich and charitable. Powerful and merciful, active and reflective, kind and competitive. We expect to be inspired by mediocre appeals for excellence, to be made literate by illiterate appeals for literacy. We expect to eat and stay thin, to be constantly on the move and ever more neighborly, to go to the church of our choice and yet feel its guiding power over us, to revere God and to be God. And that never have people been more the masters of their environment, yet never has a people felt more deceived and disappointed. For never has a people expected so much more than the world could offer. 
And uh, he's this is the start of a book called The Image, and he just goes into the image orientation of our culture. This is written in about 1960. Uh, so it's the whole thing is so much more true and developed now than it was then. But 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 he's looking at Americans as manufacturers of illusions of living in tremendous self-deceptions and and letting those self-deceptions uh, basically uh, run them. Uh, and I, I fear this among Christians. Um, uh, if only things were, if only one or two things were different, then my whole life would come together and make sense. Uh, I'd be completely fulfilled. Uh, if I, I only need to get a hold of just read one book and then everything would be settled, or one conference or retreat away, uh, one insight or spiritual experience, and then everything would be, I'd round a corner and everything would be different. If only my job were more fulfilling. Uh, if only I were married. Or if only I weren't married. Uh, if only prayer were more real to me. If only uh, the people closest to me wouldn't let me down. If only, and, and those are framed in ways that they're corners. If we go around, then everything, the, the, the clouds would part and the sun would come out and, and the, there'd be a great ascent to some uh, marvelous uh, level of existence. Um, one spiritual director remarked that people, uh, she meets people who are, who are committed and, and expecting to pursue a life that is made up of, quote, a workable framework of rules in a fixable world that most of us can follow without any real effort. And those are people who come to her for spiritual direction. Uh, uh, a fixable world that most of us can, uh, and with rules uh, that most of us can follow without any real effort. That's what it's meant. That's what meant to be delivered. And um, my difficulty with all this, and this is really talking in our terms of our categories before, of a more sort of general optimism is what I'm criticizing here. A sort of a generic optimism about what's going to be delivered and why and when. Um, my first is that it's not true. My first difficulty is that it just isn't true. Uh, but the second is because it isn't true, it's not going to work out as we suspected. As going to, it's going to let us down, and sort of the, this sort of high target and expectation is going to really bring disillusionment and disappointment to us, and that we're far more fulfilled uh, as we reckon in the beginning about on the fallenness of the world, on the brokenness of the world, and re- and and factor that into our whole conception of the way the world works and and our own lives. And so this is what I'll be dealing with here. Um, If we honestly accept that, we have a much better chance of actually um, serving God and pushing back the evil that's around us um, and and accomplishing something in our lives. There's two parts of what I'll deal with here. One is a description of four separations that I see happening at the fall itself in in Genesis chapter 3. And then... The second part will be living in the intention. How do we live in the tension of um, having great things expected of us, having very, very high goals and targets, but living in a world where perfection is just not going to happen in this world. It's not going to happen in the ways we might like it to. So, four separations. Uh, one, the separation from God, of people from God. Two, <coughs> separation of people from themselves, from within themselves. Three, of people from each other. And four, of people from nature, from the natural world. So I'll crank along here. I'm hoping to be a little bit briefer tonight than earlier today. Separation of people from God. Uh, The picture you get in Genesis uh, is is that God is walking in the garden with them. But after the fall, they hid from him. There's a basic separation somehow. They've bought into a promise of Satan that God had lied when he talked about death and God was hiding behind his back a good life, a real life for them when they could be like God, knowing good and evil in the sense that they could be designers and architects of good and evil in the place of God and not have to, not have to bow before God's definitions and, and governing of good and evil uh, to determine right and wrong themselves. Uh, praise and blame were going to be determined by them. We call this word autonomy, uh, self-law, autonomos, self-law. That was the big attraction to the fall. That was what they bought into, to be be able to displace God in God's role here. 
but that makes a relational separation. Um, they didn't want to meet God. God's presence was a threat to them uh, because they'd broken his law, because they'd set themselves up as his rival. Uh, a moral separation. Uh, God, we're created in God's image to be in his likeness, but we're not, we don't obey him. We're not even able to obey him when we try uh, in any complete way. Uh, any person you see walking down the road will not image God correctly or fully. They're God's image, in God's image, but the way they live does not image who God is uh, in anything but a very partial way. Uh, we sin because we're sinners. There's something twisted in our nature uh, that makes sin a, a predisposition to us. Um, and so we've talked this morning more, more about being a, a, a glorious ruin, not just a glory. Uh, we've and use our capacity for imaging God to to uh, to not image God but to glorify ourselves, and that means even a believer in Christ whose sins are forgiven, in whom the Holy Spirit is living, uh, still sins and sometimes experiences God as very distant and far away. Uh, now, if I had more time, I'm editing a lot out as I go along because I'm wanting to be brief. But I would talk about how the non-Christian world looks at understands this, their brokenness. And a key factor is that the non-Christian world doesn't really have a vocabulary to talk about evil. You see it coming up, in a case, especially at 9-11. A lot of journalists use the word evil with a capital E. And then a few weeks later said, what was I doing? Uh, I, didn't, I, didn't, I don't really mean that, but yet I did mean that. But what, what was going on? And, and because to, to use the word evil with a capital E, you really need a, a, a moral order to stand on, to say this is evil. Uh, how, whatever, whoever in whatever culture might think it was good, I think it is actually evil in a way that transcends human judgment and human uh, relativity. Uh, if you, any of you run across a book, especially those in literature-oriented things, a, guy called, a, a lit professor at Columbia called Andrew Del Banco wrote a book called The Death of Satan, uh, and a fascinating book because he's saying he's looking at because God is dead and Satan is dead Americans no longer have a, a way of talking about the evil that they see every single blasted day on television and around them and they're actually more exposed to evil in, in terms of visual images than they ever have been and yet they don't have words that will describe what they see and their own emotions about it and it's a very he's not a Christian but it's a really interesting uh, Track and and he's uh, he's very alarmed. He said we need to we need to, if we're going to really resist it we need to have a grip on what it is that that is all around us. Um, so we're living in a world without any adequate with experience of evil and even conscience uh, engaged, but without a, a, a vocabulary to to uh, um, to describe it. I think <clears throat> in the Christian church and here we could there'd be all sorts of things we could look at. Um, uh, I think there's, a, there's a, a, a very weak grip on the fall, a, a very easy sense in which Christians can believe that, uh, j- as I said, just one more thing, I'll turn one corner, and then everything, my life, will, all the pieces will fit together. Uh, too zealous to see the victory of Christ happening right now in this life when it actually isn't. Uh, extravagant expectations that we take get from uh, the, the, the society around us. Um, Naive expectations over uh, victory over sin, over disease, or whatever. Um, I remember when I was in London, a woman who was an American missionary in London came to me once and said, because she was very depressed, and she said, I'm a Christian, and I'm in Christian work. I'm depressed. Can you believe it? And I thought, I sure can believe it. Can't you believe it? And, and because she, it wasn't okay to be depressed. If you're a Christian, it's okay for other people to be depressed. It's okay for people who aren't Christians to be depressed, but not for Christians in Christian work. She's a missionary, for crying out loud. She can't be depressed. Well, it gets, gets what I've called double depression, because she's depressed because she's depressed, and everybody gets depressed. So that's single depression. But Christians can have double depression because they're depressed when you're not, they're not meant to be depressed. Everybody else knows it's okay to be depressed sometimes, but Christians don't. And so there's a double whammy. And literally, it's much harder on her because because uh, there's no room in her for what is going on in her in her theology for what is going on. Um, I think also there's a, a, a loose grasp on on um, 
on, on what sin is all about. Uh, that, that it'll be here with us, though, until uh, Jesus comes back with a radical uh, event that will make us new. And uh, the Reformation spoke, used the word total depravity, which I don't think is actually, I don't think I really like that word very much. I think I agree with the concept originally, but it's often misunderstood uh, to mean total depravity, meaning as depraved as you could possibly be, which would mean that we were like demons, which I don't believe is true. And I think a better term is pervasive depravity, meaning that every area of our life is touched by the power of sin. There's no part of our life that's free and that can be source of our own redemption just by turning to it. Uh, But perfection is not here for us. It's not going to be here for us in this life. You can think of someone like the Apostle Paul, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death. And I am not perfect. Uh, I struggle on. Um, but you get the sort of battered picture of uh, of the Christian uh, <clears throat> uh, wrestling against uh, the sin and evil in the world and that that's going to be the way it is. And there's a certain normality to that, which I would argue is ultimately freeing if we have a grip on it in the right way. Uh, let me quote a famous famous English pastor and poet, John Donne, just remarking on, on some spiritual... Uh, well, spiritual imperfection. Here he is, we're an absolute giant of faith. This is John Donne. I neglect God and his angels for the noise of a fly, for the rattling of a coach, for the whining of a door. I talk on in the same posture of praying, eyes lifted up, knees bowed down, as though I prayed to God. And if God or his angels should ask me when I last thought of God in that prayer, I cannot tell them. Sometimes I find that I had forgot what I was about. But when I began to forget it, I cannot tell. A memory of yesterday's pleasures, a fear of tomorrow's dangers, a straw under my knee, a noise in mine ear, a light in mine eye, and anything, a nothing, a fancy, a shimmer in my brain troubles me in my prayer. So certainly there is nothing, nothing in spiritual things perfect in this world. Now that's awesome. You know, here's a guy saying, I really have trouble praying. Here's a giant of Western literature and, and spirituality saying, you know, I get distracted by everything under the sun when I try and pray. You know, a, a buzzing fly, a straw under my knee, a creaking door somewhere in the house distracts me. And, you know, there's something... That honesty, I think, is freeing. That honesty is saying, yes, we, I wrestle with that too. You probably do too. Let's admit it. Let's admit it to ourselves and to anybody who's listening. Uh, makes a great deal of difference how we take this fallenness and that we don't pretend... It's different than it is. Pretend we have to keep a smile on our face and praise, say praise the Lord at all times, no matter what's really going on in our tree. Uh, I think what's called for is something much more uh, of real honesty, uh, trusting not in, in, our, in our perfections, but in God's mercy and God's overwhelming grace to us who are in relative spiritual wreckage. And you think of the first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit. You see any commentary, any writer on on that first beatitude, and that means being spiritually bankrupt. But that's the blessed person who's able to admit that and and accept that and go on and build from there. So there's no spirituality or spiritual value in pretending anything or or, or, or letting... Uh, uh, just trying to pretend things are different than they are, but rather in letting go pretense. Prayer is not found, and I find a lot of people come to us and talk about prayer, um, and I find a key thing is that prayer is not found by praying the perfect or uh, the perfect prayer that a perfect Christian would pray if he or she lived in your shoes. People often try to pray the perfect prayer that a perfect Christian would pray who lived, who was you. But you're not the perfect Christian. So let's give that up and pray the prayer that is real coming from you, from your shoes, from the person who does live in your shoes. And so God, is not, God can tell the difference. God knows you're not some perfect Christian. Uh, God knows that you live in those shoes. And let's make that your, the, 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 the foundation for your prayer. And I think for a lot of people, that ends up making a great difference to them. Okay, second point. Separation of people from themselves. Internal separation, internal alienation. Um, 
spiritually, morally, physically, psychologically. I'll move on quickly uh, through this one. Uh, immediately you see the picture in Genesis 3, Adam is self-deceived. He doesn't realize what has gone on. He thinks the problem was that he's naked. That wasn't the problem. He's created, been naked since the beginning. That wasn't the problem. Uh, he then shifts the blame to Eve. Couldn't face the truth about himself. <clears throat> Starts to do damage control and gets dishonest. Again, this is self-alienation. Who knows how much of this he actually believed, how much he was just trying to con God. Um, we are physically unintegrated. We're subject to disease, to death, to defect. Uh, our bodies age. Uh, a person confined in a hospital bed might have been an Olympic athlete ten years before, ten days before. Uh, who knows, and might be in a hospital bed for the rest of their lives. Um, the, the whole world of psychological suffering is, is, is dealing with separations from within us, uh, internal conflicts that can tear us apart. Paul, that pa- passage that Paul uh, says, the good I try to do is, and it's just what I don't do, the evil I try not to do is what I do, in Romans 7, he starts that passage by saying, I don't understand myself. I love that verse. Uh, it's what his Paul saying, I don't understand myself. Uh, I don't understand myself either. And I found it a great relief that Paul didn't. That Paul saw these internal civil wars going on and he didn't know what to make of it. But he's able to take this to God and able to, uh, to tell us about it. Um, death, of course, is the final separation of body from spirit, finally destroying our ability to image God here in this, on this earth separating us from possibilities here on this planet, at least in this age. How do we respond to this internal separation? Uh, I think as Christians, we're apt to chase down a lot of non-Christian idols here. There's, there's a, with every best-selling non-Christian help book, six months later, there's a Christian mimic of that best-selling non-Christian help book, self-help book. Uh, and, uh, and that's what publishers do. Can you write me a, whatever, the last I'm okay, you're okay, or the last road less traveled, or the pleasure of sex, or whatever it is. Uh, the publishers go out and want Christian authors to do a Christian version of this. And can you get it to me in, in four months' time, then we can get it out in six months' time. And so there's, a, there's a, an aping of, of the non-Christian self-help culture. Uh, at which, which uh, I, I think isn't doing us... There's, there's some very helpful things out there, as there are in this literature from, from non-Christians too. But, you, but there's a level of expectation that is, that is, again, you turn around one corner and everything's going to be okay. Uh, tremendous expectations extended to medicine also. Uh, the, the ability of medicine to deliver uh, healing under all circumstances. Uh, the assumption is that we're, we're very, very malleable. There's nothing really fixed in us that can form us. We can, we can, we can uh, change shape, we can develop, we can grow, and so on. And then you think of the, the more science-connected <clears throat> issues here of gene therapy, cosmetic surgery, all the bodybuilding <coughs> drugs, the, the whole, and we were talking about this on the way up in the car, uh, the whole enha- uh, enhancement culture, the difference between healing and enhancement uh, is a really interesting uh, thing that people are, are, are drawn into, but, but not seeing the limitations of who we are as created, not seeing that as anything to accept, but, but stretching things beyond, um, I think potentially in quite dangerous ways. Um, high expectations are wonderful if they're true, but they are a menace if they are a mirage. And uh, I see Christians again and again getting drawn into high expectations of healing, uh, I believe in healing. I believe God heals. I believe God can do miracles in healing, but I'm not so committed to it that that uh, that I think I can claim it, and that uh, that I know someone is going to be healed before it actually happens. Because I've seen tremendous, tremendous cruelty happen to people who end up not being healed, who were told by everybody, "If you have enough faith, you will be healed." I had a friend who sort of out of self-punishment, listen to one of these worst of these uh, radio preachers who would have you lay your hands on your own radio and he would, as he would pray, and that would be, it would produce your healing if you sent money in. 
to to his ministry and so on. And they had a call-in system, and he would he just would rant about this. And his wife finally said, told him, "Listen, shut up. Go and volunteer on the phone answering service, and maybe you can help some of these people for this radio program." So he did, amazingly, and they let him on. And uh, he didn't believe at all in the ministry, but he thought he could at least help some people on there. And he said that they were calling in. He said 90% of the people who called in were bitter and disillusioned about having been led down the garden path in terms of what they could expect in the way of healing, and it hasn't happened. And so he ended up having very fruitful conversations with a lot of them. But, but 90% were people who were often ripping mad when they called up and... and um, just having chased uh, a much too high expectation. Um, and of course, we don't do anyone any favor by saying, because you're a Christian and blessed by God, you won't have a car accident, you won't get cancer, you won't get into plane crashes, and these things. God doesn't give any exemption or immunity from Christian people who are very fruitful Christians from these sorts of disasters. The third <coughs> separation is people from each other, the social response. The first response after the fall was blame shifting. Adam and Eve, or Adam blaming Eve. Um, uh, she who had been bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, after the fall was the woman you gave to be with me. Uh, she gave me the fruit. It was her fault. Um, why this separation? Or what is the separation? I think one of the most prominent areas uh, is... Our failure to love each other, our failure to obey God in loving each other, uh, the whole self-concern, our whole self-interest. Biblical history and the rest of human history uh, shows an appalling readiness for us to use one another, <clears throat> uh, to inflict suffering on each other, or to just stand by and tolerate other, tolerate other people's suffering without really doing much about it. Um, Relationships infected by us, them, or we, them, or me, and them, uh, has led to whole the whole caste systems and race-based slavery and all just kinds of institutionalization of huge injustices. Uh, there never has been a fully since the fall a fully just society, a fully harmonious marriage, a fully unified church. Um, I often. In spending a fair amount of time in Switzerland at the Swiss Libri, it was sort of ironic. It's this absolutely amazing landscape. It's one of the most beautiful places in Switzerland. You can look down into the, valley, into the Rhone Valley and see Swiss Air Force jets flying around below you across and up the valley on the other side to see the Mont Blanc range. They're absolutely spectacular. But you see, almost every day, particularly a good day, you hear automatic weapons fire. You hear machine, the sound of machine guns. Sometimes nearby, sometimes far away. And it's a reminder that every Swiss man has his automatic weapon and you're meant to shoot so many rounds each year to practice. Swiss government is, the Swiss army is defensive and every, every Swiss man has an automatic rifle. And it just strikes me that living in this unbelievable atmosphere, we still have to protect ourselves with machine guns. You know, we, have, we still have, have uh, uh, we're touched you know, this, this gorgeous landscape doesn't make us better people, doesn't make us people who are somehow free from all the problems other people have. Um, how do we respond to this separation? Here I'll just briefly mention a word about um, human utopianism, or you could look at the, one of the main gods that's this place. The Christian god is the god of progress, spelled with a capital P. If you look at uh, intellectual history, uh, progress displaces providence, somewhere around in the late 19th century as the main focal point. Uh, and and uh, we, we contribute to things getting better and better. Um, utopianism sees people's inhumanity as fixable, usually by changing the structures of society. Since evil is somewhere in the system, not in the human heart, uh, we'll tweak the system. And uh, we can make it right. But utopias have always been cruel. I think of a saying by the, the Jewish historian Gertrude Himmelfarb. I'll say this slowly. Well, actually, I'll say it and repeat it because it's very, very astute. Utopianism is, quote, a dangerous illusion which tempts us in the name of the best to reject the better and end up with the worse. 
Utopianism is a dangerous illusion which tempts us in the name of the best to reject the better and end up with the worse. By comparison, the societies we look to as strong societies where there has been a substantial rule of law, where there has been some real level of justice, where there has been some sort of <clears throat> constitutional government uh, and, and, and uh, as well as strong churches, strong families, always you have built into the perception of what you're doing an expectation of sin. That's why you have a constitution. That's why you frame your marriage vows as you frame your marriage vows. That's why you set up a church as you set it up, because you expect sin to happen. And uh, you protect yourself. You don't, it's not as if you can be free from, from the, the problem of sin, but you can protect yourself massively against it rather than naively be a victim to it. You can think of how checks and balances in, in uh, European and North, North American governments really are geared to prevent takeovers of power and have done that, relatively speaking, uh, uh, better than, than anything else we can think of, any other system we can think of. Um, constitutions that stand above the power of individuals in government uh, means that we, in our personal relationships, believe in confession and forgiveness, apologizing and forgiving and reproving. These are the three biblical tools for conflict resolution. Reproof, forgiveness, and confession. If you really believe those, there's nothing that can ruin your personal relationships as long as you, unless someone just doesn't want to relate to you at all. Uh, and there's tremendous freedom we can have in those things. But those are all dealing with the reality of sin. And, and they're only be used by someone who's prepared to use them and is, is uh, good at using them, as it, as it were. Um, I was fascinated to hear way back in the, during the Watergate scandal, this is back in the 1970s, I was intrigued that this was hushed up, Watergate was hushed up within, in Russia. Now, I would have thought they'd make hay about this, all this chaos in the American political system, American president telling lies and all this stuff. You'd think they'd just go berserk. Not at all. Uh, eventually, after Nixon resigned, they released a, 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 a announcement to the Russian people that he was forced to resign by the capitalist press. And I thought, what's the deal? What, what, what's their axe to grind? And then I thought, well, actually, it wasn't me thinking, I, I read an article about it, uh, saying that they don't dare let their people know that the most powerful man on earth can get bounced out of his office on his ear for telling lies. That's totally threatening to the Soviet system. That the most powerful man at the top of it is vulnerable if he tells lies. And if he disobeys the law, he can't just stay there forever and be powerful. He's out on his ear. And that was such a threat that they had to be very, very careful how this was actually publicized in Russia. You know, you see, that's because our system is built. Now, I'm not, not any great... America is not utopia. I'm, lots of criticisms of this country. But, but there's, there's a sense in which we've built around the expectation that sin is really there and has to be accounted for and, and predicted and dealt with. Uh, fourth separation of people from nature. <clears throat> this is the part of the uh, people often call the curse on the ground, on the land, but it has to do with that and also with our, our own death. What is this separation? The earth, uh, we are created first, Genesis 1, to have dominion over the earth, to have mastery and control of it. We find in Genesis 3, after the fall, that the earth has dominion over us. To dust you shall return. Every graveyard shows us that the earth has dominion over us. Um, we're not without dominion, <clears throat> but our dominion is now always double-edged. All our technologies are double-edged. They give us control. They enable us to do great and wonderful things, but they bring a dangerous backside as well uh, of, of danger or enslavement. This is true from the development of the wheel and the domestication of fire onto uh, harnessing of nuclear energy. It gives us tremendous benefits, but there's a backside of it of great dangers uh, to enslave other people, to harm other people, uh, and so on. You see the background of the whole environmental problem that's now so much in our faces. Uh, that the earth 
pushes back when we abuse it and, and creates problems uh, for us. Um, what is our response? I'll, I'll just mention <clears throat> the one thing that's, or one of the things that's mentioned there in Genesis 3 with respect to work. Our work ha- becomes toil. Uh, raising corn, peas in the garden doesn't just produce corn and peas, it produces thorns and thistles and poison ivy and other things around us that, that uh, we didn't plan on. Uh, and so work becomes toil. Uh, often everybody else's job is, is much better than ours. Uh, greener grass everywhere. We feel like bolting to a new job, to new work, to new prospects. If only this was different, if only that was different. Uh, a huge issue, I think, uh, particularly because our society makes people think that um, their identity is their work. Who are you going to be when you grow up? Think of what that question is actually asking for. You're going to be a teacher. You're going to be a banker. You're going to be a doctor. You're going to be a something like So, So we're led to believe that your identity is determined and defined by your uh, job. And... and um, you hear many people saying their, ma- their job is their main place where they look for affirmation and fulfillment in their work. Um, well, that puts a great pressure on, on job and, and a great pressure on job dissatisfaction. I hear people saying, uh, oh, my job is much too dull. There's no variation. It's just one step after the other, the same every day, every day. I ne- the next day I talk to someone who says, uh, my job is much too unpredictable. There's nothing, nothing regular about it. There's nothing, uh, uh, there's too much pressure. It's too, it's all over the place. I don't have a chance to adjust to anything. Uh, or there are other people that say, my job is so lonely. All I do is sit in a corner and crunch numbers. Uh, and somebody else, I talk to says, if only I could have a job without people. People are always interrupting me. Can't, can't ever get anything done because people are always messing me around. You know, all those are real complaints. Uh, but so are their opposites real complaints. And, and uh, work itself is good, but in a fallen world it becomes toil and it will involve toil. And I think we need, if we, what I'm driving at is we need an expectation. It, it will be frustrating. Our work will, your study will be frustrating. So it's not going to be absolutely scintillating and, 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 and uh, exciting every moment. Uh, it just isn't. Uh, and uh, if you expect it to, you'll always be bolting for something new, always changing departments or always wanting to get a different job or whatever it is because the grass is always greener. Uh, so we need a sense of... And now, of course, we have a mobility which enables us to be tremendously mobile in terms of our work. Especially you all with the educational background that you, you have and will have. You'll have tremendous freedom to bounce from one place to another. And, and uh, or de- depending on how specialized your, your, your situation is. But, but people today with education behind them has huge, have huge freedom that uh, people never had uh, before. So if we don't believe in in work being frustrating to some degree <clears throat> uh, because of toil, we will, we're, we're liable to uh, change and, 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 and uh, bolt for one thing or another or another without really where it works against us. Um, okay, second section, living intention in this world. Uh, I've spoken of these four areas of, of, of separation. Um, problem is if all this is true if there's brokenness and separation in all these areas and they're all going to be with us till Jesus returns why bother? why bother striving? why bother working? why bother uh, um, hoping in this world? <coughs> doesn't trying hard just increase our frustration? <coughs> why don't we preach resignation and uh, belief in karma? and not punish ourselves. Well, let me mention one other separation, and then I'll get into that. Um, That's the separation of a very different sort that took place on the cross between the Father and the Son when Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Son who cried that out was put under the curse of of his Father, condemned for the sins of millions of people who would trust him. This is the great, the great separation which will bring healing ultimately to all the other separations. He can be spiritually present with us now, but will one day return and bring a new heaven and a new earth. The dead will, will be raised with new bodies. 
there will be utopia one day on the new earth. Uh, utopia beyond our wildest dreams. But we live now between his cross <clears throat> and his return and the final consummation. So our salvation today is made up of these two things. Uh, some things that are a whole group of things that are true already and other things that are true but not yet. They've not yet taken place. So already we know God's forgiveness but not yet are we perfect. Already death and disease are defeated but not yet are we free from them. Already we live in the Spirit Yet not let, yet are we free from sin or Satan's influence. So we live in this t- time tension <clears throat> between present and future. <clears throat> it's not just that we're stuck in a present moment, uh, unable to move. We're on a process, we're on a, on it, we're in, it's happening through time, through the flow of history, but at the end there's something very real that is part of the same salvation that we already have. Uh, this tension between present and future raises all sorts of questions about how we should live now. And, and this tension has been a source of vitality to Christian people since the earliest of days. Uh, a sense of tremendous vitality for stepping into social change and trying to affect their world. Because uh, we have ultimate peace and confidence and security in God because of where we stand in Christ. But at the same time, a motivation out of obedience to Christ to battle against untruth, to strive against error, to strive against injustice and suffering in the world. So, where I mean, you can think of someone, I was talking to someone about Wilberforce, you can think of his tremendous zeal to improve the lot of his fellow creatures on earth. In all, he was, he was what is he, a member of something like 90 organizations from animal helping animals to all sorts of different medical issues and spiritual moral issues uh, just passionate to I believe this I believe this is that perfection is coming but we can move now toward it we can do something we have gifts we have abilities we can use these Jesus told us a pray, to pray that the will of God would be done on earth as it is in heaven that means the will of God is not now being done on earth in the same sense that it is in heaven and yet he tells us to pray that it would which means he is going to be at work helping it to happen, helping us to help it happen, um, giving us the power to change it, using us in that process of changing things. I, I, I find it fascinating, the story of <coughs> David in Second Samuel 12. This is after the Bathsheba incident. If you remember, the child from that union gets very ill and is at the point of death, and David prays, and he fasts and prays for a week. And his servants are very nervous because they know that's not good for your health. And uh, they try and tell him to come up and have something to eat and so on. He won't do it. He keeps on fasting and praying. Uh, Finally, his son dies. The baby dies. And he susses it out. I realize they're whispering and so on. And he susses out. It must have happened. So he asks them, is he dead? They say, yes, he died. And they, of course, expect him to completely freak out because he's freaked out enough by this prayer and fasting business. But he gets up washes his face, puts on a a fresh set of clothes, goes and has a meal, and resumes life. And they say, what? We don't understand this. Now, the thing that you asked for didn't happen, uh, and you just get up and and, and carry on with life. But I think this, this, to me, is a wonderful example of someone who believes in the fall, who believes in the brokenness of the world, who isn't freaked out when fallen, broken things happen, puts himself full energy into changing it, all he could do. He was helpless apart from his prayer, but he prayed and fasted for for a week. But then when God says no, he's not ultimately crushed. He stands up and says, well, and he, he, he answers them. While he was alive, God might have changed his mind and, and, uh, and granted life. I didn't know. Who's to know? And, and so he's as much as saying, I'd do it again tomorrow. In other words, it wasn't a, a total failure and a waste of a week for him, no, he did the, the one thing that he could do for his child's life, he did it, and when the answer came no, okay, I stand up and I, I go on with life that is a tremendous example for us, we often want to say well, I'll 
Think of what you've wrestled with. I'll only get into this graduate program if I can be sure I'll get a good job afterwards. Well, who can be sure of that? Uh, you'd never get into anything if something was, everything was guaranteed at the end. Uh, we want the results nailed down before we even start, before we risk ourselves stepping out and, and, uh, and putting ourselves on the line. But this isn't the kind of world that we're living in. Uh, we have to uh, venture into things that may turn out the way we plan, may not turn out the way we plan, may turn out the way better than what we plan, may turn out, in our view, worse, uh, whatever. But, but our, our job is not to trust in God's, in what we think God's, what, what, what is our program, but we, our trust is in God's providence and God as a person rather than the program we have worked out for what God ought to do in my life because uh, we all have good ideas about what God ought to do and our commitment has to be to, to, to God as a person rather than what we think his plan ought to be for us. Uh, <clears throat> Proverbs 24.6, an intriguing verse. The righteous man falls seven times and rises again, but the wicked are overthrown by a calamity. Now, that's a fascinating one. Because our image is, and is that, uh, you know, the, the wicked fall down all over the place, but we are good Christians and we don't fall down. Uh, this is exactly the opposite. The righteous falls seven times, but rises again. But the wicked are overthrown by a calamity. The righteous falls again and again, but isn't destroyed by falling. Expects to fall. Isn't amazed, surprised by falling down. Um, by discovering evil and failure within himself or herself. There's a certain way we're prepared for it. Not that we don't resist it or try not to, but we're prepared for it. Um, but the wicked is shattered by failure that was not anticipated, that was not dreamed of. Um, Apostle Paul talks in Philippians 3 about how he's not perfect, but he presses on and strains forward for the upward call of God in Christ. God's work in him isn't finished. He knows he's not going to be perfect, but he wants to get as close to it as he can in this life. And uh, knowing that he will make it, but he will not make it in this life, but he wants to get as close to it as he can in this life. And Some people will say, why bother? If you know you can't make perfection, why why try hard at all? And I think, uh, first of all, God says to, but second of all, the closer we get to what God wants us to be, the better we image God, the more fulfilled we are because we are images of God. And that means we become more and more ourselves. The closer we get to imitating Christ, the more ourselves we become, the more fulfilled we are as a result. Um, and, and the Apostle Paul talking pressing on to make it our own. <clears throat> Chesterton, I love quoting Chesterton, um, if a thing is worth doing, it is worth doing badly. That's not because he didn't believe in excellence. Uh, but if it's worth doing, it's worth doing badly. That means, how do you do anything without starting out doing it badly? Who's ever started anything without doing it badly at first? Um, and so many people from a musical instrument to uh, a graduate program don't even start because they can't start out uh, doing it well. Uh, there's a poem that I came across <clears throat> referenced by Mother Teresa, but uh, I don't think she wrote it. It came to me from a, a missionary doctor in Haiti. It's called Anyway. Some of you may have seen it. It goes like this. People are unreasonable, illogical, and self-centered. Love them anyway. If you do good, people will accuse you of ulterior motives. Do good anyway. If you're successful, you'll win false friends and true enemies. Succeed anyway. Honesty and frankness make you vulnerable. Be honest and frank anyway. People favor underdogs but follow top dogs. Fight for some underdogs today. What you spend years building may be destroyed overnight. Build anyway. That's a tough one. Uh, give the world the best that you have and you'll be kicked in the teeth. Give the world the best, the best you have anyway. Now, uh, that's pushing it all the way to the wall, but, uh, the two, this, this gets you past two terrible things. A utopianism that will destroy you, and maybe destroy others as well, but also a resignation, giving up because utopianism isn't possible, because utopia isn't possible. Uh, and it's saying to call on the, uh, on the, the, the source of motivation we have for 
doing it anyway. God calls us to do it anyway. This isn't just absurd, but it is actually out of obedience to the God who uh, um, takes us there, who went there himself when he came on earth. Um, so it's true that years of work can be destroyed overnight, but it's also true that not all of God's work is going to be destroyed uh, overnight. <clears throat> and the power of what remains will be enormous. And even if our visible work is destroyed, we live before a God who lives in secret, uh, whose evaluation of our work is very different from what we see visibly. I think the, the human scorekeepers, so they can think of our magazines, Fortune magazine, Sports Illustrated, I don't know, whatever, uh, you... you, you uh, you can see the the people who who are the success stories, and and uh, I think what Jesus the teaching of Jesus is those those magazines and their the scores that they keep will turn out to be exactly backwards. The first will be last, and the last will be first. They will be not just skewed, not just not quite right, but they will be actually backwards, actually upside down. Um, you can think of the people in the book of Hebrews where it says who, will, who ended up dressed in animal skins and lived in holes on the ground of whom the world is not worthy in the sight of God. That's a, that's a heavy one to get a hold of. They live in animal skins, in holes in the ground, and yet the world is not worthy of them. The world in all its stretch limousines and rocket ships and everything is not worthy of, of these people who lived in holes in the ground. Uh, if we understand this, we can have a kind of realism without resignation. Uh, we can throw ourselves into serving Christ, whatever the outcome is, <clears throat> in this visible world, um, and do it anyway. Uh, wonderful words of Paul, in the end of 1 Corinthians 15, the chapter on, on um, the resurrection. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, Knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. That means that in the Lord you're not just writing on water. Uh, doing something that makes no lasting difference. Even though some of our work will be erased to the visible world. It won't be in the sight of God. Okay, I've just tried to, to, to give these four areas of, of separation. Talked about the tension we live in. And, and, uh, and how... To be in that tension, we really need to take our fallenness seriously. We need to really live um, reckoning on that, reckoning on this second great primal uh, event. It isn't that, that there's no peace. It isn't that peace of mind isn't good. It isn't that confidence. Peace of mind is there for us because we have a Lord that really is our, also our Savior, our defender and friend. Uh, we know the peace of reconciliation with our Maker and his, his love and acceptance. I mean, we also know that the end of the outcome, the, 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 the end of the day, the outcome will be that, that uh, God is on the winning side, and if he is for us, no one can be against us, or anyone who's against us, it really doesn't matter. So we have a tremendous hope set up for us. Uh, I'll just end with the words of Pascal, who has lots of wise things to say about this subject. Certainly nothing, and he's talking here about original sin and, and just the fallenness of our condition. Certainly nothing offends us more rudely than this doctrine. And yet without this mystery, the most incomprehensible of all, we are incomprehensible to ourselves. So he's saying, if you want to understand yourself, this is the way to do it. You don't understand yourself by blocking this out, pushing this out of your uh, vision in a sentimental way. So your labor is not in vain in the Lord. I'll stop there.